Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Mark Vincent. He's a medical oncologist at the London Regional Cancer Center. Uh, this is part of the Cancer, Se- Cancer Care in Ontario, Canada. And we're going to talk about his work. So, Mark, thanks for coming. Hi, Richard, and thanks for having me. Yeah, if you would, tell me a bit about your background and how you got involved in uh, oncology care. Sure. So um, I uh, was born in South Africa. I lived um, much of my life in South Africa at school, but also um, Central Africa and what was then Northern Rhodesia and became Zambia. And um, uh, got interested in biology, loved animals, loved being out in the bush, felt that uh, being a game ranger wasn't a great way to earn money. So uh, my mother persuaded me to to do medicine. And uh, I, kind of, I kind of felt it was it was okay. I mean, the alternative was mining engineering, which was, you know, lots of opportunities in Southern Africa. Um, but I chose medicine and got accepted into um, medical school at University of Cape Town. And um, spent a long time, as we all do in medical school, kind of, you know, just learning the basics. And once you've kind of mastered that, you, you just go into another set of basics and from pathology and bacteriology, anatomy and physiology and stuff. And then I had to think about, um, you know, what I would do with myself because um, I wanted to be a specialist of some sort. And um, I thought that uh, cancer was pretty interesting from a biological point of view. And it was clear to me that it had remained a serious mystery. This was sometime in the mid-1970s. It still seemed to be very mysterious as to what it was. It seemed to me that there was a biological angle to it, which was not fully understood. Um, it seemed to me that the um, whole field of molecular biology was starting to explode at that point and that for sure uh, there would be a cancer angle. And of course, uh, you know, we, we all know about Nixon's war on cancer and the massive funding uh, that followed from that. And uh, I felt that as we got to know more and more about the inner workings of the cancer cell, uh, that there would be a wave of therapeutic opportunities that one could ride, uh, which would enable one to have one foot in the research 
biology world and another foot in the therapeutic world, which um, seemed to me to be good for a kind of bridge bridge building sort of mentality, which I felt was where my, my niche was. And so I decided to um, go over to England. Uh, medical oncology wasn't a really well-developed specialty in South Africa at the time. I mean, certainly we did it, but it was mainly delivered by radiotherapists. Um, but there were a couple of specialized hospitals in the UK, one of them being the Royal Mars. And so I pitched up there in the in the late 70s and asked for a job. And uh, they were kind enough to give me one. And so I sort of learned my trade about how to look after people and administer chemotherapy and Mm. spent a, a year doing pathology there and then uh, sort of kicked about backwards between South Africa and 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 Britain. And then uh, just given the job situation in the UK and the fact that medical oncology wasn't an established specialty in South Africa, I looked to North America and ended up here in Canada. And um, so I decided to subspecialize as a medical oncologist, having specialized as a physician first. So it's a kind of a long and winding road, really. Did not get a PhD, I guess, because I was kicking around different countries that were going through, you know, various traumatic episodes at the time, but just decided to settle down, get a job, earn some money, and then indulge my interests on the side. As an academic oncologist, you get about half the time of the week where you can do what you want, uh, as long as it's constructive and kind of directed towards promotion through the university. And so that's kind of how I ended up in oncology. And I'm kind of glad that I did, because it's proven, I mean, it's, it's been kind of you know, swings and roundabouts, and there's been plateaus and so on. But by and large, looking back over 30 years, it's it's been a fantastic ride where most of what I predicted, not all of it, but much of it has come true in terms of learning about how the, what goes on in the cancer cell and what goes wrong. And to a limited extent, some of the therapies that have been derived from these insights, um, and then having the opportunity to think seriously about the biology of cancer uh, with a number of other folks around the world has been a, a real thrilling experience for me basically to to think about cancer in a new kind of way and so that's where i am so half the time i hand out drugs to people and i will say they're living a lot longer than they used to the clinics have become very crowded because um you know people don't die anymore in six months you know they kind of often live for years and so that's a high-end problem to have but uh, you know there's more and more demand on society and more and more demand in the clinics what cancers do you focus on you know, blood or solid ones or which ones? So we kind of trained on everything. So I, I did, you know, a fair amount of blood stuff in, in Britain, um, looked after the biggest leukemia award in, in, in Europe for, for a long time, for nine months, which was a hell of an experience, uh, honestly. Um, but right now and for years, I've done lung cancer and GI cancer. So those are, it started off as one big site and one small site. So GI initially didn't have a lot of interesting treatments, um, but there's no small sites in oncology now. So everything is treatable, whereas previously many things were untreatable, but now everything is treatable. Everything is you know, undergoing fairly rapid evolution with just a huge amount of information flowing through. So there are no small sites anymore. So I've really ended up with two big sites, which is GI and, and lung. So, okay. GI cancer, you mean? Uh, Gastrointestinal. So yeah, um, everything from the esophagus down to the anal canal. So esophagus, stomach, pancreas, biliary, small bowel, large bowel, anal canal. So, and, and that's, you know, this, that's a huge practice. And of course, lung cancer is very, very prevalent. And so that's a huge practice well, as well. So two very large practices clinically. So question, question here about lung cancer. This is interesting to me. There's, um, it seems like the, evident, the incidence of people that have never smoked yet get lung cancer is on the rise. And it appears to be more in women than men. So when you say you study lung cancer, 
Um, have you noticed any difference when you're treating someone that was a smoker versus not? Yeah, no, the, the, um, you know, the, the non-smoking lung cancer is actually, if you look around the world, it's actually the sixth commonest cancer. You know, if you segregate, you know, lung cancer into smoking and non-smoking, just look at the incidence of, of non-smoking lung cancer. It's the sixth, sixth commonest around the world. So it's, and I, and I would say, yes, I think it is increasing. And uh, at the same time that lung cancers related to smoking uh, are decreasing somewhat, you know, they, they peaked in men a while back and, and uh, men have been quitting smoking for some time now. And uh, for a long time, the, the female side of smoking lung cancer was increasing because there's, of course, a 20 to 30 year lag between starting smoking and getting the cancers generally. But that has now peaked and is a little bit on the way down. So we are seeing, I mean, still a lot of people who smoke and have, have, have lung cancer, don't, don't, don't get me wrong, but there's a bit fewer of those. And there's somewhat more as a proportion of cases of people who have either never smoked or are what we call light ex-smokers, which basically means you smoke less than 100 cigarettes in your lifetime. So, yeah, that has become a very interesting and actually, from a therapeutic point of view, quite an exciting uh, group of people because we have very interesting targeted drugs uh, that are very effective in these non-smoking cancers. Um, and it's a very different kind of practice with the smoking folks. Although you do, there is an overlap. You know, if you smoke, it doesn't stop you getting these other kind of cancers, of course. But, but by and large, uh, one can think about, as you said, somewhat more in women, somewhat more in Asians, uh, East Asians particularly, and somewhat more in never smokers or light ex smokers, whereas opposed to the usual kind of run-of-the-mill, heavy smoking kind of Western type individual, often a man, but not always, not always by any means. Okay. What are you studying in terms of uh, cancer? I mean, you're treating clinically, but what does your research look like? What hypotheses are you testing? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. We have different sort of levels of research, and one of the uh, the advantages about you know practicing in, in Canada and in academic centers in general is that you get to do clinical research, which means that you participate in clinical trials, which either you initiate or some pharmaceutical companies initiated or some large, some large academic group. So, um, you know, one of my, one of the trials I can speak about now is my, my own study, which has been supported by a major pharmaceutical company, which is to look at one of these targeted treatments in predominantly never smoking individuals who have a particular mutation in a gene called EGFR, which we all have. But if that is mutated and is overactive, it's like you know pulling the pulling out the throttle on a on an engine so that uh, it just keeps going, and that drives this sort of cancer growth, endless endless kind of growth. But you can block it with a drug. Thing about cancers is that they're pretty smart. They figure out how to become drug resistant, so eventually they stop working after somewhere between ten and eighteen months, and then you kind of default to old type chemotherapy, which is you know somewhat effective but not that great. And then after that, you're kind of more or less out of options. But what we decided to do was rechallenge these people in the third line. Once they've had the first line drug, they're on it for a while. It works. It fails. Then they get the chemo. It works for a while. Then it fails. 
So then we are re-challenging people with the original drug they had in first line, the original targeted drug, once they've gone through the chemo. So it's a kind of re-exposure to what they had up front to see if you can reinduce remissions in these people uh, with the same drug that they had in first line, providing there's been an in, a kind of intervening period with some chemo in between, which would hopefully get rid of the resistance mutations. Uh, and then you can, uh, in theory, reopen it and hit them again with the and see if you can go backwards and forwards like sort of ping pong. And so that's up and running. And um, that's my study that I initiated with one of my colleagues here is working very hard with me. And we have 10 sites up and running in Canada. We might expand into the United States. And so far, we have about uh, 30 patients on the study. We aim to get to 200. So that would be a sort of clinical trial where we put patients on trials, testing hypotheses. Um, you know, is one drug better than another? Can you re-expose people to the same drug after a period of time? Can you put drugs in various combinations? That kind of stuff. So that's clinical research and also looking at new drugs, totally new drugs. And that's that's interesting. Um, but in terms of uh, my other research, I have, I have a lab program. I have a lab program that's looking at um, two particular small molecules. And really what we sort of focused on is trying to reverse drug resistance. So we're trying to look at why it is that we have, you know, quite effective standard treatments that work for six months, nine months, 10 months, and then they stop working. And they, they stop working because they don't succeed in eradicating the cancer at the beginning. And so there are these residual cells in there that just experiment, experiment, experiment the whole time with their genome until they find some way to escape from the therapy. And then the cancer comes back and it is drug resistant. And, and uh, that is the, the hard problem in oncology is drug resistance. And so we have a couple of a couple of drugs patented actually with issued successful patents that can suppress these so-called persister cells and can potentiate standard of care drugs. So this is a little niche that, that we have looked at. So we have a target to um, a DNA repair protein called RAD51, so that if you suppress that, you can potentiate um, standard of care drugs and make them work better. We have drugs that can potentiate potentially the immune system, because we know that the immune system can be helped now to attack cancer in a big way, especially in lung cancer. And we know that that depends on the number of mutations in the cancer. Actually, curiously, the more, the better, because it more, looks more like a bug. So we have ways that can increase the number of mutations, which is a kind of counterintuitive thing that you wouldn't expect. But that's, uh, that's uh, undergoing patent approval right now. Uh, and we have ways that can potentiate other kinds of chemotherapies and targeted agents that, um, that we can deliver. So we have about what does that mean? What does that mean? Yeah, what does that mean specifically? What what would you do differently with chemotherapy that so, would so affect the cancers positively? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, so 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 let's look at um, a new class of drugs called a PARP inhibitor, PARP. So this is in a, this is a category of drugs that are approved and on the market. Um, intensive um, interest by the pharmaceutical industry. There's about four or five of them actually on the market. Uh, and approved for use in breast cancer, for approved in use in uh, ovarian cancer. But they're particularly effective in women who have um, who've developed cancer on the basis of a BRCA deficiency. So BRCA, BRCA, um, and this is out there in public now, that there are a number of people, and this can run in families to a certain extent, where they inherit a partial deficiency in this BRCA system and what this BRCA system does is that it helps to repair your DNA when there are mistakes. When the DNA gets broken, it kind of puts it back together in a way that's perfect. As you can imagine, your cells are being copied, you know, every 24, 48 hours. 
It's like copying out the telephone directory. These cells make mistakes. You get little DNA errors and breakages, uh, and they can fix it in a perfect way. So it's a miraculous system, but it goes wrong occasionally in some families and some people, and eventually mutations pile up that cause cancer. But it turns out that if you have some kind of, if you have this BRCA deficiency, which about 10% of women do with ovarian cancer, you're very sensitive to a drug that can block another enzyme called PARP, P-A-R-P, because if you lack the BRCA, you now need to be backed up by PARP. And PARP can somehow back up to a certain extent and keep the cell alive. But if you then knock out the PARP as well with the drug, you then cannot live as, as a cancer cell. And so you get these dramatic responses on these PARP inhibitors if you are particularly these women who are BRCA1 or BRCA2 deficient. But that leaves 90% of these women with ovarian cancer, for example, who are not BRCA deficient. And so what we do, we've patented and been issued patents uh, for a way to knock down the BRCA when it is normal. Okay, so we are inducing a BRCA deficient state, which again is counterintuitive, but then the PARP can work. So in other words, instead of the PARP inhibitor only working in the 10% of people who have this weird bracket type situation, we can learn from that and understand why it is that you can make the PARP, these PARP drugs work much better if BRCA is knocked out or BRCA is deficient, but 90% of the time it's not, but say, wow, we can then take something and knock the BRCA out in this other 90% and make them now sensitive to the PARP inhibitors in a way that they weren't sensitive before. So that's that's the kind of thinking that you know we've kind of focused on that particular niche. So what do we need to do to mimic these these small populations that are so very very sensitive to drugs? Because we know cancers are very heterogeneous. Some people the drugs work well, some people they don't. And so the, the real question is why why does it work so well in this minority? And can you replicate that in everybody else uh, with some kind of maneuver? You know, some kind of drug, something like that, where you can. Turn these other, instead of saying, you know, it's just a biomarker, BRCA is a biomarker. So, you know, if it points one way, you get a, you get a PARP inhibitor. If it points the other way, you don't. Instead of looking at just as a, as a, as a kind of a marker, as a, as a kind of a, uh, you know, a directional kind of, you know, lighthouse kind of thing, you can look at it as a door that you can kick in. So that if you can kick in the resistance mechanism or the mechanism that makes these drugs not work not so well in many, many people, you can find that door and kick it in. You can convert everybody or many more people to these kind of super responders. So that's the niche that we've looked at. And we've got several programs and we found ways to do this in several different cancers and looking at several different targets. Yeah, that's very interesting. So you found a sub-cohort that reacts well and then you induce the other people that don't have those characteristics to have them yeah, or to exactly. mimic them so that the drug can work better. When, yeah, so, when you so, said the drug so, works so well, we're, we're what, taught what by nature. We're, we're taught by nature what to do. You just have to listen to nature, you know, you have to read the book of nature. But when you say this particular drug works well, what does that mean? What does it do to the patients clinically? Well, we, you know, we haven't, I mean, what, this is preclinical work, right? So, so basically what we're doing is we're trying to, you know, make sure that we know how to do it exactly. Cause there's a lot of, I wouldn't want to use the word drudgery, but there's a lot of boxes to check before you can take an idea and put it into a human being. Um, it's a process that now costs in excess of a billion dollars and probably takes 10 years. And so, you know, this whole opens up the whole question about, you know, the length of patent protection and whether the patent protection is adequate, whether the financial resources are adequate to actually undertake this kind of thing, because many of these drugs end up for one reason or another failing, you know, it's somewhere down this pathway from the idea in your head to, you know, a white powder that you can administer to patients. It's, a, it's probably a, a process that takes 10 to 15 years 
and many of these ideas fail. So for, for the people who invest in it, you know, the venture capitalists, the granting agencies, uh, they know that, you know, most of these things are going to fail. So they rely on, you know, the few successes to underwrite this entire kind of thing, because you, you may not be able to, to tell up front what's going to work and what isn't. Right, but what, what I wanted to ask you is in the minority or the 10% of people that already have this BRCA issue, the drug that they're given, they're, they're already being given that clinically, it sounds like, and it seems yeah. to have good effects. So what, yeah. what are the effects? Yeah, so, so the effects are that you know, basically they shrink. The, so it depends when you give it. So you, if you give it in, the, in people who've got big lumps and bumps, and so we're talking here, for example, for, with you know, cancer of the ovary, but this is also true for cancer of the breast. It's also true for cancer of the pancreas and cancer of the prostate, which is, you know, these are the cancers that commonly occur in people with these BRCA problems. But let's take cancer of the ovary, for example. So this is a disease that tends to come back within the abdominal cavity. Um, even though you take the ovaries out where the, the tumor is, you take it out, clean it out as much. But most of them will unfortunately recur. And so when they recur, the, you know, the disease is kind of big, lumpy, bumpy and causes them a lot of subjective problems ultimately. And, will, you know, in some cases will ultimately take their lives, unfortunately. But you can, we treat these people with chemotherapy, which is a drug called a platinum, platinum-based chemotherapy. And these shrink and control the tumors for a couple of years. But as I said, eventually the tumors figure a way around that. But you can add in these PARP inhibitors, you know, PARP, PARP inhibitors. And even as single agents by themselves, they have a, a fairly good chance of shrinking these tumors down and prolonging people's lives. Um, again, not forever, but sometimes for many, many, many months. Um, the other time to give it, and this is a very interesting concept, is in women who've just had the surgery for ovarian cancer, and we know at that point that, as I say, many of them, the cancer will actually come back. But uh, inside the abdomen, you, you take out what you can take out, but there are tiny spots that you cannot see. They're too small. And if you administer these drugs at that time, when the tumors are really tiny, um, with these PARP inhibitors for, say, you know, three years or more, uh, there is a fantastic reduction in the, in, the, in the time to failure, if you like, if the time. And I don't know. We don't have enough data to know if these people are cured. But. If you administer these PARP inhibitors in this BRCA population just after they've had surgery or very soon after surgery, you can stop the cancer from coming back for years and years with drugs that are relatively well tolerated. These PARP inhibitors are not chemotherapies, not to say they don't have side effects, but the side effects are rather small. They're rather minor, relatively well tolerated drugs. And you can have people on them for years uh, and they can, you know, you can substantially improve the prospects uh, at, at that earlier stage. If there's not a lot of uh, extra tumor mass, then perhaps the, you know, the, the compounds and the drug are then spared and used for these micrometastases or microtumors. And maybe yeah. that's why they're more effective. Yes. And so there's, there's a lower tumor burden. There's less tumor cells to become resistant because, you know, the, it's like winning the lottery. And you know, if you become resistant, some of it's a bit of a crapshoot. It's like, it's like pulling the lottery. So if you do it a hundred million times, you're going to be more likely to win than if you do it, uh, you know, a hundred thousand times. So it's probably more, as you say, more effective uh, for longer if you have a lower tumor burden to begin with. Makes sense. Okay. So is your trial going to be, um, again, inducing this, this bracket depleted stage and then working on these people right after they've had surgery or at what point will the, will the trial use the new uh, methodology on them? So the way, the way we would, intend to convert them into this bracket efficient state with a technology called antisense and antisense has had a bit of a checkered history there are a couple of antisense compounds now maybe even 10 or so that have been approved by the fda 
mainly for metabolic diseases and not for cancers. But the reason is that it's difficult to deliver. And so if you give them intravenously, they tend to get taken up by the liver. They tend to be excreted by the kidney. And so they're difficult to deliver into cancers um, if you inject them intravenously. But if you put them into the peritoneal cavity, you know, into the abdomen, which, you know, you can do that even with old-fashioned chemotherapy. The concept is that you will then bathe these microscopic deposits, these micrometastases in this kind of ocean of antisense to the BRCA, and that you're much more likely then to be able to get penetration into these tumor cells within the abdominal cavity, especially when the tumors are very tiny and very small. And because it's being put right into the abdominal cavity, uh, you won't get you know, clearance through the liver or clearance out of the kidney in a hurry. And because you can just put a little pump in there or a little pipe in there, and you can just repeatedly put, put, uh, put the stuff right in the abdominal cavity. And this is done to some extent with chemo. It's actually, you know, it's, it's actually guideline. And you can do this with conventional chemotherapy as well. So it's not kind of out of the world to do that. And so the idea is that you could kind of turn the abdomen into like a Petri dish. I mean, this technology works extremely well in the laboratory, in the, in the Petri dish, you know, we've got a dish full of tumor cells growing and sloshing around in a kind of a liquid. And this technology works dramatically well in that setting. And so the idea is to, instead of using the antisense intravenously, which is, you know, has been very difficult and not successful in oncology at this point, is to just put it, you know, like a kind of a, a bath, you know, in, inside the perineal cavity uh, and just bath these micrometastases as if it was a Petri dish. And so that's something that we're trying to finesse now. Uh, we're being helped uh, to some extent by folks in Toronto who are doing this w- uh, with us. Um, in, in animal models. So we're trying to figure out, you know, what is the precise specification for the particular antisense? Because there's, you know, different embodiments about antisense. I don't need to get into details, but there's different types. Um, you know, how big does it have to be? You know, how to optimize it and how to make this work. Um, and so I think the best opportunity for it would be in these women with micrometastases uh, and being able to deliver it right in the abdominal cavity uh, you know, at a time when these tumors, we know they're going to be there in 70% of the women, but they're too small to see. And we think there's a much better chance that they can be delivered that way. And also, if you deliver them locally, you know, you won't have any systemic toxicity or minimize, you know, minimize the systemic toxicity. And then at the same time, give them these PARP inhibitors by mouth, which is the usual way they're being given right now and on the market, just in the normal way. And um, we think we can improve, for, you know, in this 90% of women who have BRCA wild type, that means they're unmutated. And to mimic these, uh, this ten percent where you get this fantastic benefit from the alaparib, for example, is one big study called Solo Solo One. I think huge study, fantastically successful. And we're trying to mimic this in the vast majority of people who who, who are not BRCA mutated. We're going to convert them or phenocopy the BRCA mutation, and we we want to do it initially in animals, and it's it's underway, uh, and we'll see if we can make it work. So we really need to be confident that we have the best and optimized way to make it work in an animal model, and then export it into human beings with the best chance of success. And, you know, that takes time and money. Question here. I've spoken to people that are using organoid models to check the effects of various drugs. And one company, I don't remember exactly, but they had a, um, I don't know, a liver organoid hooked up to a kidney organoid. And they saw that a compound they administered was changed by the liver, which made it then toxic to the kidney, would also affect, and the kidney's effects, and more effective versus not. The, the idea is by putting into the abdominal cavity, the kidneys are actually behind the, you know, they're retroperitoneal, they're behind the abdominal cavity. So if you put it into the abdominal cavity, you don't expose it to the kidneys directly. You don't expose it to the liver, at least not immediately. 
And so we, we hope to have a period of time whereby we have local, localized high concentrations of this material, um, just, you know, freely sloshing around the abdomen, you know, in, you know, 100 ml of fluid or whatever, uh, and just exposing the entire abdominal cavity where we know there's hundreds, if not millions of, of little tiny deposits of these tumor cells. Um, so, you know, again, it's a hypothesis because it's not just about, you know, the target. We know the target works. We know if you knock down BRCA, you dramatically potentiate PARF inhibitors. And you dramatically potentiate platinum chemotherapy drugs. So you can do this trick with platinum chemotherapy, which is also standard in ovarian cancer. You could, you could expand it to that as well. The other hypothesis, though, is the delivery. So you know, the question is, can we overcome the delivery barrier by, by, by this trick, if you like, of localized high concentrations of this antisense material? Uh, we're optimistic that we can, and we certainly are, are giving it our best shot. And, you know, I do rely on, on generous gifts from patients. I've had a couple that have enabled us to do this work, but that's really what we depend on. Uh, you know, we depend on risk money, which can be given by grateful patients or by people who are prepared to donate philanthropically. Um, is it ready for prime time for VC? Uh, not quite yet, but I think if we can get a decent proof of principle, uh, I think it will be. And certainly there's, a, there's an issued patent, you know, so we have freedom to operate in this space. When you induce the BRCA depleted state in patients, have you um, sat back and let uh, let them revert back to their previous state? And do they do that? Like, how long does this depletion last? Yeah, it's it, you know. So, in, in terms of the animals, so we would we believe that we need to to expose these tumor cells to it for you know by twice at least twice weekly injections, maybe three times a week. So we think that you know for forty eight seventy two hours we can suppress the BRCA type, but. We are not here, this isn't, um, you know, we do have an interest in doing it with, say, CRISPR-Cas9, where you kind of permanently convert them by knocking out the gene in the DNA, okay? So what antisense is directed to is the messenger RNA, which is a, just a kind of transient thing that has to be renewed all the time. So if you knock down the messenger RNA, you stop the protein being made, as I'm sure you realize. Uh, but, of course, the underlying gene itself is still intact, right? So the gene itself will start to kind of produce normal messenger RNA as soon as the antisense kind of washes out. So I do, just like chemotherapy, you know, you need to keep on giving this. You know, could you do this with CRISPR-Cas9, for example, to permanently knock out the um, the BRCA? The worry that people would have is that when you do that, you'd be altering the BRCA in some normal cells because it's impossible not to get normal cells exposed and you'd be inducing cancers. If you permanently put in something that's permanently going to knock out the BRCA, uh, there are going to be some cells that are going to be transfected as well, and you're going to have bracket deficiency created in some normal cells. You know, maybe it's going to be in your blood, maybe it's going to be just in the lining of the peritoneum, maybe it's going to be in the intestine or the liver or God knows what. But you know, that is that's potentially dangerous. But it is certainly a route that we might consider, especially if you could target a package into the tumor cells only by some kind of postal delivery system that would specifically deliver this construct to the cancer cells and not to normal cells. And so there are, there's a whole raft of people working on, on, on these so-called antibody drug conjugates where, you know, the antibody is used as a kind of delivery system and it carries with it some kind of package. And that package could be a chemo drug, like a crude toxin. It could be, uh, you know, a radioisotope that um, will kill locally. So, you know, one of the other things, one of the other areas that I, that I do research in is I like to think conceptually you know, about what cancer is, and we can talk about that if this is some time. But one of the other issues, one of the other things that I, an essay that I wrote recently was uh, towards a general theory of the target. 
and it, it seems to me if we can sort of go down this rabbit hole just briefly um that there are really two ways to treat cancer there are really two fundamental ways i, I know that, you know cancer treatment is a very cluttered landscape with radiation and surgery and immunotherapy and you know targeted drugs and cytotoxics and and, and so on but there really seem to be two ways one is that you know there's something has gone wrong in the signaling system of the cancer cell uh there's a mutation or a series of mutations or aneuploidy with you know multiple genes dysregulated for one reason or another and there's a causative mechanism that is disrupting the cancer cell so as a mechanic what you want to do is you want to go in there and fix it you want to go in there and fix it in some way so that if you know you know what's wrong like your car is misbehaving you take it into the garage the mechanic looks at it he says you know it's the spark plugs it's whatever it is it's you know whatever he can diagnose what the thing is and he can fix it the other approach is just to say well it's unfixable or you know it's too hard to fix let's just destroy it so let's recognize it by some kind of marker some kind of attribute and then use this marker to bring some kind of destructive mechanism and um activate this destructive mechanism by some kind of proxy fuse if you like and you know destroy blow up whatever the tumor and so that is simply based on recognition it's not based on causality reversal it's based on recognition so for example in this EGFR group of lung cancers that we were talking about earlier on where you've got this driver mutation which is this EGFR driving mutation in these never smokers that's upregulated we can identify it we can assay it we've got drugs that specifically bind to it and we can block it and you know lo and behold these tumors shrink down dramatically i mean they don't get eradicated but they do respond dramatically sometimes for years it's very very gratifying uh, and there's a number of examples like that but the other the other thing to do is just to say well you know i can see this tumor you know like a surgeon i just go and then i'll cut it out you know i'll just cut it out or i'll irradiate it you know or i'll, I'll inject something right into it that's poisonous or if it's a case of chemotherapy or something that you know it's got some kind of physiological signature that's different and chemotherapy works pretty well you know we've had it for years and we're continuing to use it why does it work because there's some kind of marker difference some kind of signature functional functionality that's different between tumor cells and normal cells that chemotherapy can exploit but it doesn't reverse the causality in the same way that these targeted drugs do you know based on these mutations and so on these directly targeted drugs that go inside the cell and kind of fix them to an extent. So there are basically two red two fundamental ways to treat cancer. You know, one is based on a marker of some sort and the other one is based on the causality principle. And you can take any treatment you like. And this is also true of, you know, microbiology by the way and infectious diseases. You can either eradicate them based on some kind of marker or you can fix them by some kind of internal, you know, screwdriver kind of thing that you go in and you can fix the defect in some way. It's basically two fundamental ways and this is this is an essay that I wrote. Not really you're not you're not really destroying them because a lot of cancers come back, but your approach seems more sensible. It's more local and not not as systemic. So it seems like it could pave the way for maybe a lower dose of chemo that acts systemically to finish the job or do it more adequately for instance. Yeah, you know and, and I actually I actually suspect that um you know if you combine these these two these two concepts of the causality thing and the the sort of destructive local delivery thing that it seems that you get really very very powerful anti-cancer effects when you can combine these things together so for example in prostate cancer you know sometimes guys just get their prostates radiated with radiation from outside you know and all they do is they aim at the prostate i mean it's sophisticated and all the rest of it. i don't want to 
minimize the you know the technological challenges of avoiding normal tissues and all the rest of it but basically they find where the prostate is and where the tumor is and they shoot uh, you know huge amounts of radiation at it that basically just kills it okay now at the same time you can also treat prostate cancer with drugs that block male hormones as is well known has been known for you know decades okay but what happens if you combine the two right and you the answer is that you get better results if you combine the two so you get this kind of two-hit punch. And the reason is that when you understand the causality machinery, the driver, not only are these things driving the cell division that grows and grows and grows, they're also driving the fact that these cells are resilient and don't want to die. So these driver mechanisms um, are not not only causing growth, they're also causing resilience, whereby the tumor cells are protected from dying. So that even if you smack them with something, you know, like chemo or something, if that driver machinery is still operating, one of the things it does is that it switches off the death mechanism or the apoptosis machinery in cancer cells. Because if the signal is like grow, 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 you know, like there's a big wound, okay, you've got to close the wound by growing skin cells into it. You don't want them dying. You want them proliferating. And sure, you know, when the wound is closed, it's got to switch off, okay? But, you know, cancer is the wound that never heals, okay? This is an old term. So basically, you just have this driver mechanism the whole time. But not only does it cause proliferation, it causes um, a failure of the cancer cells to respond to death signal. So in fact, if you can combine some kind of destructive thing like radiation or something like that, even if, you know, radiation or chemo, but at the same time, you can switch off these survival growth signals simultaneously, you can dramatically improve outcomes by this kind of two-hit punch. And that's what we need to get smart at doing. Uh, is this kind of two-hit punch. And and if you go back, and this is one of my other interests, is, is looking at, you know, the evolu- you know, life on Earth. You know, one of the interesting things about life on Earth is that it's been subject to extinction events, about five or six of them, and about 50 minor ones, but five or six major ones. And the question is, you know, what caused these extinction events? And it's generally a combination of two hits that's called press pulse. So a press might be like a chronic stress, like, you know, volcanoes that erupt for, tens of thousands of years and change the atmosphere. Okay. And then on top of that, you get like, you know, a a hit from a meteorite or there's some kind of, some kind of hit that's sudden and quick. And this is called press pulse. And when you get these two things, press pulse, that's when you get a big extinction event, massive. And if you think about it in terms of cancer, that's really what we're trying to do. We're trying to create a mass extinction event in these tumor cells. That's what cure would require, right? A mass extinction event. But at the same time, it's got to be selective. And so any cancer treatment has got to do two things. It's got to be effective in reducing the number of tumor cells that would otherwise be the case. But it's also got to be selective so that you don't smash the normal cells and create intolerable toxicity. So what we're trying to do is create a selective mass extinction event. And this is what's happened in the history of life. Obviously, some things, you know, the Permian extinction, 90% of life forms, you know, went out, right? but 10% survived. So how do you do this? You know, how do you do this in a way that you can get rid of a lot of stuff, but you want the stuff that you want to live, you've got to protect it. So what can we learn looking back at these mass extinction events that's going to help us? And the answer is, it's this press pulse phenomenon, but you've got to find some way, some way of protecting what you want to protect. You've got to hide it in the basement, or you've got to protect it in some way from the radiation or something. You've got to selectively protect it and selectively damage the others. So it's actually selection 
that is the hard thing in, in treatment. It's not so much getting rid of cancer. You can get rid of cancer cells pretty easily, but it's doing it selectively. That is the intellectual challenge. Well, very good. What, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work and to keep tabs on its progress? Well, you can uh, contact the London Health Sciences Foundation, you know, if they're interested in, in donating. Um, the London Health Sciences Foundation will channel, channel money if you, speci- if you specify it for my research. And, you know, we're always looking for money. So, you know, having seen the suffering that I, I see, I have no shame in, in asking for money at all. Uh, well, it's not what I grew up doing. But uh, this is the only way this, this work goes forward, you know, is by philanthropic people supporting um, this kind of work. Contact the London Health Sciences Foundation in London, Ontario. It's London, Ontario, not London, England, by the way. They'll also take your money, I'm sure. But London Health Sciences Foundation at the London Health Sciences Centre and London Regional Cancer Programme in London, Ontario. It's, and I'm attached to the University of Western Ontario, part of Cancer Care Ontario. So it's, it's very much above board. And there's a, there's a machinery to, to be contacted that's not me directly. If you want to contact me directly, I'll be happy to help. Um, you can look at my publications, um, search, uh, you know, Vincent M or Vincent MD. There's a couple of these papers on what's called the atavistic theory of, can- of cancer. This is the theory that cancer is this kind of throwback to this very primitive organism that that um, evolved as a eukaryotic cell back in time when there wasn't a lot of oxygen on Earth about one and a half billion years ago. Uh, and this is a chap called Paul Davies, and I've been thinking along parallel tracks there. Turns out to be substantially true by by other people this um, reprimitivization phenomenon, but, and, and, uh, you know, I've, I've sort of written a, a couple of essays on, on, on these issues about how to target and, and so on. And I have other publications based on the work we're doing in the laboratory, you know, looking at trying to sensitize uh, tumors that are not particularly sensitive by imitating the tumors that are sensitive. And, and uh, I don't, I'm sorry, we're the only people who do this, but, but I think this is our major niche. And as I say, we have at least four or five programs uh, that are actively pursuing this. I think you're on mute, Richard. It's definitely a new method um, that I haven't heard about, and I've, done, I've interviewed quite a few cancer folks. So it's excellent you're doing that. And um, Mark, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. And, and um, you know, I, I hope you're okay from your own personal experience. Um, I think there's a very good chance you are. And I, without going to the details, I, I you know, it's, a, it's one cancer that's increasing in incidence. And, you know, the question is we need to understand why, you know. So I think there's... Uh, you know, other very important things that are doable in public health realms. Why do people get cancers in the first place? Is it an accident? Is it something we can do something about? You know, these these never smoker cancers, they often say to me, you know, why did it happen to me? You know, I have a suspicion that it's due to poorly ventilated in-house cooking, where it's, you're exposed to cooking fumes that are, that are not adequately ventilated. And uh, I think that explains some of the geographic disparities. Uh, it's not necessarily genetic. So I think all of these things, it's a whole team. Cancer, solving this problem is a, is, a team, is a team effort, and it's a project. It's a project underway. I do think we're going to get there. I do think we're going to get there. Gone a remarkable length. I mean, all these immune therapies, these targeted therapies, I never thought, honestly, after about five or ten years, I never thought they'd come to fruition, but they have. So just looking at the lung cancer practice, it is absolutely transformed, but we still got a long way to go because we can make these people live longer possibly cure a few of them extra, but there's still a lot of people where ultimately we don't. And so we have to keep thinking. We have to keep risking. We have to keep gambling. It's gambling a little bit, but you can try and do it in an intelligent way and you might just get lucky. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Well, very good. Mark, again, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Richard, and all the best for you. And I'll certainly be uh, in my leisure time having a look and seeing what other folks are saying as well on your podcast. Excellent.
If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.